So that leads us to song number three. I love this song. It's called I'm Only Sleeping. I probably love it because I never do it. Listen to the sound of that bass. Oh, I I love it. that little that boom 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 boom, and then later it goes boo doo doo boo, and he hits the mm-hmm. like the little double stop at the end. It's just like oh, it's it's so good. And it's, when they re- it's such a simple but perfect little fill to put there. And when they repeat that later, it sounds like there's a backwards sitar in there that comes in, or or some kind of um, I don't know. It's it. I've always thought it was a backwards sitar, but who knows? I, th- I think it's a backwards guitar. But, oh, it could be. Yeah, which sounds a lot like a sitar. <laughs> but but that bass, it almost like it's so plucky. It almost sounds like an upright. Yeah, I think it's got to be his violin bass. I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got that like hollow body sound to it. Yeah. Um, but it's great. Yeah, this has always been one of my favorites too. It's you. So you go. You you start off the album with a Harrison song, then into a McCartney song. And then into this. So you've got three very different styles. And this is what I loved about the Beatles albums. It's not just one song into the next, into the next. All completely different sounds, completely different styles, jumping around. Um, And then you go into this, which is like a very, very typical Lennon, just strumming up and down and with the the vocals, like very like kind of bebopping on the beat. uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's great. I love the song, and it, it it's you know the I'm only sleeping thing is just it's so you know I can see how you could just get sleepy listening to the song. It's you know you've got a, a rocker into like a, a string song that's kind of oddly frenetic, and then into this really lethargic sort of sound. Well, and it's such a gentle vocal too. It just kind of lends that I just kind of want to lay down on a pillow and enjoy this until I you know until I'm knocked out. Uh, I I love the way John sings this because it does have such a smoothness to it. And he really had a pretty good range in his vocal. I feel like this is not the top of his range, but this was more like his comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. He seems very comfortable in the song. Yeah. It's it's such a great song. Um, I love the drums on it, too, because there's Ringo's riding the, the crash cymbal a little bit in here. Um, but mm-hmm. it's not overbearing. It's mixed in there very well, where it's you get the effect of it without the attack of it, uh, which which really works. Because with only you know four tracks and all the drums being in one ear, if he's riding that crash too hard, it's mm-hmm. just going to kill, absolutely kill the song. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah, and it's just John being like, I don't know what he was on at this time specifically mm-hmm. probably mess maybe messing around a little with LSD yeah. um definitely smoking pot but i think he was just kind of like it's like i'm only sleeping it's kind of like a you know sleep is um, um well it's it's it is sleep but it's mostly <laughs> from substances it's which just it's it's amazing how uh productive he and they could be while being kind of in the early stages of being so involved with drug use. 
Well, there was that line from the movie Summer School where uh, Chainsaw said the reason that people don't know how to drive drunk is because they don't learn how to drive drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, One of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. You know, I've always said if I ever did, uh, you know, because these are getting really popular, these rewatch videos on YouTube or first time watches Mm -hmm. where like one person will have seen the movie and the other person, it'll be their first time watching it. And uh, I've watched a few of these and I'm like, man, summer school would be one of the top movies on my list if I ever. Yeah, that in Adventures in Babysitting, I think, would be like two I'd want to do right off the bat. Maybe Big Trouble in Little China. I wouldn't be able to be in either of those. uh, uh, I would not be able to be the person who's never seen it by a long shot. Because I think if if you had to put my my top 10 of all time movies that I've seen the most, Adventures in Babysitting and Summer School would would definitely be in the top 10, maybe top five. Like the the original three Star Wars movies and then those two movies. Yeah. And I used to watch summer school during the summer. Like I would go swimming and then I'd watch summer school and then I'd go swimming again. Like it was just great watching that in the summer being like, ah, these fools are in summer school and I'm I'm not. <laughs> I actually uh, saw that in the theater. My uh, Oh, nice. My brother and I were, uh, we went to the art museum in Detroit. I, I don't know why. We just like wanted to get out of the house. So we went to the art museum and that was when I was really into Magical Mystery Tour and I remember mm-hmm. uh, Strawberry Fields Forever was was really stuck in my head. But that end part where it gets kind of creepy. Yeah. And um, we the art museum is like really old and musty and the stairwells, like almost so dark, you shouldn't even go in there. And it, I just remember like hearing Strawberry Fields that whole time and really Oof, setting the yeah. mood for this creepy art museum. And then uh, we saw summer school was playing. We didn't want to go home. So we just went. A great, a great artsy movie. <laughs> exactly. Such a you weird. Know, oh, we went to the uh, arts, uh, the art museum and watched uh, the, the great Fellini uh, movie, <laughs> Summer School. <laughs> it, it's like that day was transitioning, like the how eclectic this album is. Yeah. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Listening to Magical Mystery Tour, watching Summer School. Yep. Great movie. It's a fun day. Yeah. Uh, I and also to... another popular thing is mo- those, these movie minute podcasts. Where oh, yeah. every episode is just focusing on one minute of a movie, mm-hmm. um, you know, so you just take the first minute of summer school and that's episode one. And the first the second minute is episode two. Uh, that'd be a, a great one. And that's 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 one of the ones that, uh, you know, I could probably recite almost every other line from. Oh, yeah. And uh, and the kid that played Chainsaw went on to do a couple of movies in the ski school series that were. Yes. Not yeah, quite, I never saw those. They but... didn't have the quite the charm of summer school because summer school just had a magical cast, but they were like the closest second. Yeah. So I think you'd probably like them. They're, they're just as campy. Yeah. It's great. It's great. It's, it's, it's a perfect movie for what, like what movies were in the Mm eighties, but if people like you'd have to kind of, people didn't grow up in the eighties, you probably have to preface it with like, this is not actually what happened in the eighties or how people (laughs) behaved in the eighties. Like this only happened in movies, you know, these guys like creating, like recreating horror, uh, scenes and and things like you know like it was just such a it was such a movie thing that you'd have these characters that acted this way yeah i i often wished i could manipulate a teacher into just getting a wish out of them that they do whatever i wanted and yeah (laughs) Yeah, exactly teach me how to drive or (laughs) improve my football game and at the end you end up with kirstie alley so you know hey can't go and at the time that would that would have been something special yes yes absolutely (laughs) Uh, speaking of Kirstie Alley, our next song is called Love You Too. <laughs> nice segue. Perfect. <laughs>
Okay, so normally I play a 30-second clip of the song, and so far we haven't really gotten to the song yet, so I'm yeah. going <laughs> to jump ahead to where it gets fun. <laughs> All right. <laughs> This is just such a fun song. It's got a great groove to it. Um, you wouldn't expect a song that features the sitar to be so groovy and rock and rolly, but it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like kind of like descending. It's pretty. It's pretty cool because he had progressed so. I, I seem to remember reading somewhere when he did the guitar in Norwegian wood, it wasn't really intended for that, but they put it in there and it obviously makes the song very distinctive, yeah. but like he was just learning how to play. So he was just barely figuring out how to play that song. And then you fast forward to this, which is the following year, but I don't even know how it, it might've only been a matter of months later, how much more proficient he'd become on the sitar. And you just must think that at the time, this must have blown people's minds if you, they hadn't heard Indian music before right. to hear this and, and be like, what is even what is this? Like, what is this sound? Mm-hmm. When I was uh, Cynthia Lennon wrote a book about her life with John and, and all this um, that I read years and years and years ago. And I this one part of the book that always stuck out in my mind was she talks about when her and John, when the Beatles were just starting to get big. They went over to somebody's house for dinner and they had made Italian food. And it was the first time either of them had tried garlic. Wow. And I just remember reading that and being like, like mind blowing that, like that you would even consider, of course, I grew up eating Italian food with an Italian family, but that you would consider Italian food ethnic. You wouldn't even feel like that was ethnic food now it's just part of the mainstream Mm -hmm. but to to have never tried garlic in their lives in their early 20s um and how mind-blowing that must have been and like that this is like some new cuisine they're trying and i kind of think of the same thing when i think of this is like this new sound like who's ever heard these sounds before so so many people probably heard this sound before for the first time I mean, myself included, I'm sure I never heard a sitar before a Beatles song. Right. Like, where would I have heard that? Mm -hmm. Um, Even though this is an an instrument that's been around forever and all this sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's really cool that he brought this to the to the mainstream, but also combined it with some sort of like kind of Western um, Western sensibility in the singing and stuff. Oh, for sure. I, I I listened to a lot of world music, but I didn't get into it until well after I had heard you know, uh, all, all this music it probably wasn't until like my uh, early 20s when I started to really expand into world music. But uh, it's it's such an amazing instrument. And the the recording of this, the crispness, how clean it sounds, they got the full body of the sound of it. I mean, this is just such an amazing recording uh, to, to top it off. But the groove of it, the the whole song, um, the the lyrical pattern, John sings with such a smoothness that I think it really works well with the instrument. Yes. George. Oh, I'm sorry, George. Yeah. Yes. But yeah. um, Yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible. And this is like, here is a song, like a few, a few albums prior where it was just Paul McCartney with, uh, you know, it's Paul McCartney and the guitar doing yesterday. Mm-hmm. Now here we have Harrison's version where it's just George Harrison, no other Beatles on this track. Mm-hmm. 
with the sitar and he's got session musicians playing the, you know, the tabla and whatever else is going on in the background there. So it's, you know, here's where they're starting to branch off into things that it's like, again, would they or could they even do this live? Probably not unless right. they brought in a bunch of other people. I don't think, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ringo probably could have figured out the tabla. I don't know what uh, what other sorts of uh, instruments would have been going on in the background, but doubtful whether any of the other Beatles would or could play them. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I I think too. I I have to wonder. I mean, we're we're four songs into a very eclectic album, like most of their later albums were. How would they write a song and say, "I don't think that fits this album"? Because I think yeah, yeah. You, you could make the case that anything fits. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's all it's all over the place and it would only get more extreme on the next album. It's just um yeah, anything goes. And that's what I like about it. That's what I what I think so cool about them is it's just anything that they wanted to do in the moment. And and I would imagine if you were, you know, if we were around when this album was actually released and and hearing it on release day or or you know, as soon as we could get a copy, every song just being Oh my God, look, look at this song. This is crazy. And then the next song, Oh my God, look at what they're doing. This is crazy. Like yeah, every what are single they doing one now? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't feel that we get that a lot nowadays. I don't, I think people really stick to styles and, uh, yeah. you know, formulated here's what we can get on radio or here's what we can get on a Spotify playlist. Uh, I, I think that's one of the treasures of albums like this or albums from, from those days, like, uh, even King Crimson or, you know, whatever, where, where there was just such a variety in some of the things that uh, we just don't get anymore. Yep, absolutely. So next up is uh, called Here, There, and Everywhere. To lead a better life I need my love to be here Here Making each day of the So smooth. I love the vocals of this band. Yeah, it's, it, this is another one of Paul's many, many masterpieces. <laughs> this is a great, I mean, it's just a beautiful song. Um, uh, yeah, and I think it, it was even, you know, I know when, when John Lennon, Lennon did the Playboy interviews, um, which is a great little book. If you, I found a used copy of it years ago for a couple bucks and picked it up and it's just great. And it, the great thing about it is that it was done a few weeks before he died mm-hmm. and um they ask him about every Beatles song. Wow. Tell me something about this song, about this song, about this song. And they're short little clips. Uh, you know, and you know, it, mo- mostly, you know, this is done. He's still a little harsh on Paul. He's like, oh, it's another one of Paul's pieces of crap, or you know, wow. this is, you know, uh, oh, just one of his sappy songs. But f- I, I remember for this one, he was just like, oh, that's this is one of the the best songs he ever wrote and one of the best Beatles songs. Like he really he really even as as bitter as he is in the moment, and I'm sure he would have mellowed a little more with age. Yeah. Um, he does give Paul credit on a lot for a lot of his good songs, but he's also a very harsh critic to himself as well mm-hmm. um, about some songs that you would think are pretty slow, pretty much slam dunks, right. you know. Um, wow. uh, but it's it's really interesting. But yeah, I I agree with uh, with him on this one. I think this is just a, a beautiful song. Yeah, I mean it it has just a, a warmth to it in the vocals. And uh, the backing vocals, uh, you know, being so loud in the mix, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't distract me. It, it actually just complements Paul's voice really well. 
you would think that it would be too much, but it, but for some reason it's not. No, I mean it's very simple instrumentation. It's mm-hmm. just um, you've got that guitar, you've got um, you got drums, but they're almost kind of far in the background. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's just George Harrison on guitar. I don't think there's any additional guitar. I think Lennon's just doing backing vocals. So it's very, uh, um, yeah, very simple. Yeah. Like uh, most of the songs on this album have been fairly even. Songs that are in a way complicated are are instrument instrumentation wise are very simple. Mm-hmm. There's not even a bass line on this. Um, is there? I don't hear one. No, you might be right. I don't. Yeah, it might just be like that. It's just that very gentle strumming of the guitar. Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. That's I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think, but I don't think it needs it. But at the same point, I think if you if you have a song that's this simple. You almost have to play just root notes and just add a little yeah. bit of low end tone to the song. I don't think you could write a typical like McCartney bass line to a song like this. It would overpower the song. Yeah, if he's be be bopping along on on the bass in the background, it would take away from it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, let's get to uh, you know what what we haven't had on this album yet is uh, very much Ringo, and I think we're due. We're due. It's going to happen. It's going to happen right now. Here's a little yellow submarine. In the town where I was born Lived a man who sailed to sea And he told us of his life In the land of submarines So we sailed I love the very upfront and loud water effects of these very yeah, I don't fast think I've ever crashing heard it waves. So loud before. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't know if sometimes, you know, the way it comes across over Zoom or whatever, but I'm like, wow, that is really loud. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you have to put all the drums in one ear, but you have enough room to put the waves in both ears. <laughs> it seems a little it's much. Three tracks, bounce everything down onto one track and then have three tracks of waves. Yeah. And I know... They had just done this stuff in the studio with like, you know, blowing bubbles of the straw or sloshing around water in a bucket. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming they would have like slowed down the t- or sped the tape way up. Right. To get that slowed down effect, because that, you know, it sounds like an ocean, but it's kind of cool. You know, nowadays it'd be so easy to just in two seconds bring up ocean sounds on <laughs> any platform imaginable but then they're like oh crap how would we do that oh we'd have to go to the bbc sound library and screw it just get a bucket of water and we'll slow down the tape or or, or, or speed up the tape and slow it down um but it sounds it sounds like ocean waves yeah it, it's definitely a quality uh sound for sure and it, it wouldn't surprise me if they were that inventive and just took like uh you know like a foot bath or something and you know, just kind of rocked <laughs> yeah. it back and forth because uh, the waves aren't big, they're they're very you you can tell that they're not large waves. They're they're smaller. Yeah. But I'm just I'm just amazed at how loud it is and and yeah. kind of unnecessary because you already know the songs about a submarine. It's it's like uh, that much waves is a little bit overkill for me. Uh, yeah, the thing about Ringo singing versus the other three singers in the band is he does not have that smooth way of, of singing that the rest of the guys do. And you hear it in Octopus's Garden. You hear it in this song. He has a good voice, though. I like the sound of Ringo's voice. Yeah. 
yeah and it got better over time too mm-hmm. um you know and this is uh you know there's a difference too between the Bing- the Ringo song that he wrote and him singing uh, someone else's song so mm-hmm. this is largely a McCartney song um but it's interesting because it's ba- like the the verse part is is John Lennon wrote wrote and Paul McCartney wrote the chorus mm-hmm. um and kind of arranged it and on that on that recent revolver release there's a there's there's john lennon doing that first part of it oh uh, and it's actually a very kind of dark and haunting song when you hear john lennon doing it and singing it and then they turn it into something like it's basically a kid's song right it's not yeah i mean there's yeah yeah there's nothing no, nothing really uh, nothing really else going on it's just it's basically a song it's it sounds like a song for kids wasn't there a um a yellow submarine movie or was it just a video there was a movie, but it came out, I think it came out a couple years later and it was mm-hmm. kind of based off of, you know, obviously they're traveling around in the yellow submarine, but, right. um, and the song is it's, so it's a comp, it's like, a it's got a bunch of various Beatles songs in it. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of songs written specifically for the movie. Okay. Gotcha. It's a, it's a good song. Uh, not one of my favorites, but, uh, you know, still, it's not like I go, all right, I don't want to hear this and I skip it. Yeah, it's, it's not, I mean, it's it's one of those ones that's so ingrained in me and I've heard it so many times that I just don't even really think about it anymore. I know some people are like, ah, yellow submarine stinks, but I I don't know. I, I have a hard time removing myself from any of these, the Beatles songs in a way that I can look at them completely objectively. Like it's just, it's part of growing up and part of what what I listen to. It's part of this album. And I, uh, you know, it's, and every song is so freaking short. The longest song of this album is I'm only sleeping. It's, three minutes and two seconds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every other album, every other song is either three minutes on the dot. There's a two that are three minutes on the dot. Every other song is, you know, we've got two minutes and two seconds, two minutes and eight seconds, two minutes and 14 seconds. I mean, I, I, I never skipped any songs listening to these growing up. Cause it'd be take longer to walk over to the record player, <laughs> right. move the needle, and get it in exactly the groove. than it would be even worth it. Exactly. And I did, I did at one time I had all these on vinyl and I really regret not keeping them. Yeah. I mean, I've got all the original pressings because my dad oh, bought wow. them as they came out, but I mean, they're in bad shape. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, I, you know, they're, they're pretty beat up, but I mean, they're yeah. all originals. The covers I would imagine have like a huge, uh, that huge album ring mark and. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you know what, well, when you play the beginning of the next track, I'll see if I can dig up revolver in the meantime. Well, I, I'm curious how you store your records, because the the few vinyls that I have as I started collecting them again, um, I take the LP out of the vinyl. I yeah. keep it in a sleeve and then I put yeah. like an al- I put it in an album sleeve, but I, I take it outside of the cardboard of the, the jacket. So it's all in that plastic album sleeve, but outside of the jacket. So it doesn't get that uh, album ring on it. How do you yeah, store your probably- I just store them. I mean, the uh, I mostly I just store them in this in the sleeve. I probably should do that, but I'm not like a big uh, collector of vinyl. Like I, mm-hmm. I like having it to have it, but I'm not like keeping everything in mint pristine because uh, I don't really listen to them hardly ever. Right. I have them all digitally, so yeah. it's more just having it to have it. So I did happen to find a sealed copy of Whoosh at my local uh, used Ooh. record store that's uh, down the street, and it was uh, just one that they hadn't sold. And oh, nice. uh, so, yeah, I have an original pressing of that, which is nice, um, considering that, you know, even uh, down to like Rapture of the Deep, I can't find for less than 60 or $70. 
And, uh, you know, mm. most of those albums yep. are double albums for some reason. Uh, I don't, oh, it's yeah, just, they're all It's all weird. It. It's so yeah. different from when I was, you know, back like when Perfect Strangers came out and House of Blue Light and all those albums. Everything is just so different now. Yep. But let's check out our next song. Uh, it is She Said, She Said. <laughs> One thing, uh, and, and I got a, a little bit to uh, say about Ringo on this song, but I realize mm. when I listen to a song like this, how lyrical their riffs are. Yeah. It's almost like they come up with the melody and go, okay, here's how the vocal side of this melody is going to work. And here's how the guitar side of this melody is going to work. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they're great at doing those uh yeah, those melodic guitar and bass lines as well as what they're singing. And just their I mean, when you compare them to other contemporaries, just their their gift for melody overall, all of them is just crazy. I mean, Harrison is a little bit more um simple in his melodies. Mm -hmm. Paul McCartney, probably the most inventive, but yeah, their 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 melodies are incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with Ringo, I recently saw a, an interview with him where he was talking about why his drum fills are the way they are. And I've always mm -hmm. wondered how he developed his style. And if you listen to early Ian Pace, you can really kind of hear a, a, a Ringo mm -hmm. influence as far as his fills go. But uh, Ringo plays right handed, but he's actually left handed. Oh, is he really? And so when he goes to move, he it's it's uncomfortable for him to do a normal drum roll from high tom to floor tom because it's yeah. backwards for him. So why he didn't set up his kit like Ian Pace does as a left-handed kit, I don't know. But that's how Probably he plays. Probably because he was bouncing around in so many clubs and they had a house kit that was yeah. set up and he's not going to rearrange it for a lefty, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. It's kind of like, it's almost like a um, a symbol of status, like... Paul McCartney grew up in a pretty middle-class, well-off family, mm -hmm. was able to get a left-handed guitar and learn left-handed and plays on a left-handed guitar. And you got Jimi Hendrix, who grew up in a poorer family, just right. strung up an old guitar, uh, you know, used a, a right-handed guitar, strung right-handed and learned how to play that way, mm -hmm. um, which really informed the way that he plays and made, made for him doing these really inventive things. Right. And, you know, may have you know, worked out in a good way. But yeah, it's to me, it was always kind of a sign of what socioeconomic upbringing you had, whether you uh, adapted to right-handed or just learned, uh, or, or whether you adapted to right-handed or learned on an actual left-handed instrument. Right. And, and kudos to Ian Pace for doing his audition for Deep Purple on a right-handed kit and still getting the gig. <laughs> oh, did he? I didn't know. Yeah, didn't because know uh, he, Bobby Woodman, yeah, who was the drummer of Roundabout at the time? I can't remember what his other last name was. Bobby, what was it that you had posted? Bobby Clark. Bobby Clark. Uh, they had sent him out, or he went out for cigarettes. And when Rod Evans came to audition, they <laughs> snuck Ian Pace in the back door, and he auditioned on Bobby Woodman's kit. Man, I'm trying to imagine auditioning on a, like a left-handed bass. Like, I guess if I played it, 
I could sort of, yeah, it definitely would not be, uh, wouldn't uh, be your best work. wouldn't be at my prime, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but the reason that his uh, Ringo's fills are the way they are is because it's uncomfortable for him to get back to the hi-hat. So his fills start a little late. He sometimes skips a, a 16th note before he'll start his fill. Um, they'll end a little early before he gets back to the hi-hat. That's why his style is the way it is, is because it's a backwards kit for him. Makes sense. Yeah. But this is this is another just a, a, a great song to just like put on the headphones and just enjoy and not have to think about too much and ignore the world and just let the song take your mind away. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, this is a good one. I, I like this one. And um, it's a, the story behind it is that uh, John Lennon was at a party with Peter Fonda and either he was on acid or had just taken acid and he just went up to John Lennon and whispered in his ear, I know what it's like to be dead. <laughs> and he's like, oh, <laughs> so, um, so then he changed it to, I think, I, I don't know if they originally did it as he said, but they changed it to, she said, um, mm-hmm. I guess cause it scanned better or whatever. But well, the one thing I'll say more, I think about John's lyrics is that they're very abstract sometimes. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot like Ian Gillen, I have no idea what the hell he's talking about, (laughs) but I just enjoy I I just I'm in for the ride. And a lot of the times that's intentional on his part. He he loved screwing with people. So, you know, famously, um, I know the story that I heard about, you know, I am the walrus was that he heard that some sort of college somewhere was analyzing his lyrics with students. So he just basically made the most nonsense song you could possibly (laughs) thinking, you know, like, you know. You know, a, you know, yellow matter custard drinking, dripping from a dead dog's eye and all this crazy stuff. Like he was just putting it in there to just, ah, I wonder, uh, kind of like the movie. Hey, analyze this, right? <laughs> you know, um, and, and there's basically, you know, it's it's nonsense. There's nothing to analyze. But of course, a bunch of academics will try to break it down. Well, yellow matter custard represents the human soul or whatever, uh, you know, the nonsense they want to attribute to it, which is, I think, true of a lot of authors. I think a lot yeah. of um, symbolism and everything is is uh put upon it uh put up put upon these works through academia and through people looking at it and interpreting it when it probably wasn't even meant to be there in the first place and and i sometimes wonder mostly i don't care but i sometimes wonder <laughs> what's behind that like is it we need to know that there's some basis for everything that we like we yeah. need to think that there was intelligence behind it didn't just happen somebody just didn't draw words out of a hat and string them together I think it's I think it, it comes from people who don't truly really understand creativity and that things can be random and that things, you know, like people get mad at Ozzy because he did these songs about the devil. Oh, he must be a devil worshiper. Like you can write songs about the devil and like his Ozzy's famous thing was like, you know, nobody gives Vincent Price a hard time when he does all these <laughs> like occult things or whatever because he's an actor. But yeah. if I write a song about the devil, I'm a devil worshiper. Right. It doesn't. And I think to me, it just it's people that just don't understand how creativity works mm-hmm. the same way that conspiracy theories exist is I can't I can't accept a world where things happen randomly or somebody randomly kills somebody or somebody randomly does something. There's no there's no there has to be. Oh, the government's behind it. And it was, it was a setup and a cover up. And mm-hmm. all these people knew about it. Sure. Th- there are there are conspiracies they do exist, mm-hmm. but not everything is, has this big story or, or, you know, plot behind it. Sometimes just bad things happen. Sometimes good things happen. And, um, people I think are just wired to try to make sense of the world. Yeah. And people like John Lennon 
were wired in a completely different way, way where he could just say, oh, you know, here come old flat top, you know, or, or, or whatever, you know, nonsense he's going to draw from an old song or come, just come up with completely out of thin air. And people are assuming it must mean, oh, you know, yellow matter custard must be, you know, his his he must be using that to symbolize something. It's like, no, it's just literally whatever came into his head at the moment. Right. And I think, too, with the conspiracy theory, I think part of it is our our desire to escape our most people's mundane lives. You know, yeah. the uh, yeah. I, I go to work, I come home, I eat, we watch a movie, smoke a cigarette, have sex, go to bed, whatever the routine is. And yep. uh, they they need something to make it more interesting. They need something to pursue or something to just distract them from that routine. Yeah, you know? you, normally it's normally Occam's razor is is you know just the simplest explanation mm-hmm. can uh, uh, to that 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 and the combination of what's the quote like uh, don't I forget whose quote it is, but don't don't attribute to to malice what could more easily be attributed to incompetence. You know, right. like whenever something goes wrong, it's like oh these people were trying to do this bad thing. It's like, I think they just screwed it up. I think they just messed up. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, people are, you know, people do things wrong. People make mistakes and uh, there's usually not a ton more to it. And, and right. the simplest explanation is off, not always, but often the correct one is just, okay. Uh, you know, he shot this person because he was crazy or he shot this person because he was mad at them not because you know he was part of some government plot to you know oh john lennon was talking too much about peace and they had to they had to get this guy to kill him it's like i think it was just a crazy guy that crazy fan that killed him yep very much so and in fact that same fan had visited stephen king and said i'm your number one fan and that was where we got the book and movie for misery yes yeah Wow, I didn't realize it was the same guy. Mark David Chapman, was it? Yeah. It's always somebody with three names. That's the thing. Like, don't give your kid a middle name or don't call him (laughs) all three names, even when he's in trouble. Don't go, Scott, Kevin, Haskin, you get in this kitchen right now. Like, you you add my middle name, I'm going to be a murderer. Well, you know what? Nobody calls you Scott, Kevin, Haskin, but if you assassinated somebody tomorrow, you would become Scott, Kevin, Haskin for the rest of your life. (laughs) I absolutely would. To, to differentiate you from all the other Scott Haskins who are like, hey, whoa, that wasn't me. <laughs> did I ever tell you why I release all my stuff under the name of Scott K. Haskin? You did not. Alex, there, there must be another Scott Haskin out there. Well, there is. There's a Scott J. Haskin that we used to go to the same allergy doctor. We both got allergy <laughs> shots. And every time I went in, I'm like, I'm afraid that they're going to give me his mix <laughs> and not mine. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it was it was because of family ties, because I love the Alex P. Keaton thing. Oh, I just yeah, thought yeah. that sounded so cool and professional and would be taken seriously. And uh, so I just started doing that. Alex P. Keaton and Michael J. Fox. And Michael J. Fox. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so complete non-related Beatles story. <laughs> but there is a very happy Beatles song coming up. It's a great one to start your morning with if you're so inclined. If you're not listening to Here Comes the Sun to start your day, which is another good one, uh, you could listen to some Good Day Sunshine. to laugh and when the sun is out I've got something I can laugh about I feel good in a special way 
a sunny day. Good day, sunshine. How could that not just take your blues away? I, I know there's some people that don't like the song because, you know, Paul McCartney tends to to, to uh, dip his toes into the sappiness uh, frequently. But I uh, I I don't care about uh, well, when it comes to his solo career, I do. <laughs> but in his Beatles era, there's nothing too sappy from Paul McCartney that I won't love. And this is a perfect day. It's just such a great song. So uh, it's just perfect. I love it. Yeah, I mean, it, it it makes me feel like, uh, well, you know, because you live uh, in Chicago and you've lived further back east, but that that day of spring when you finally open up the windows and the fresh air comes in the house, that's what yep. this song makes me feel like. It's like, it's this new love. I'm so excited. It's a sunny day. I just feel like, you know, everything's cleansed and I'm starting off in a, in a great spot, just ready to take on the world. 100%. Yeah. I love how it starts off sounding kind of menacing with the piano. Like, dun, dun, yeah. dun, dun. You think, oh, my God, this is going to be like this weird dirge or something. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, boom, and it turns into this little happy poppy song. Again, just, just over two minutes long, too. It's right. crazy short. Yeah, it does. It does start out on kind of a dark note. In fact, I, I don't think I had noticed that before until I was just listening to it. And mm. I'm like, this kind of reminds me of like the end. You know, from from Abbey yeah, Road that yep. has that same kind of tonality to it. And I'm like, this is kind of a this is way dark for a happy song. Do I did I pick the wrong vial? Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he turns it around pretty quick. And I love it's George Martin playing the piano on this. Oh, and I love the the boom. boom. It's it's such a simple little thing that totally makes the song like if you took that out, it just wouldn't be the same. It's it's so simple. And it's um, I think. I think I don't think there's any guitar in the song. I think it's just the piano, yeah, uh, bass, and I think it's just Lennon and Harrison doing uh, background vocals or harmonies. Yeah, and drums, um, of course. Um, very, very simple. Again, very simple instrumentation. Yeah. Did the Beatles filling in wherever they need to to fit the song? And again, something that uh, another reason these songs wouldn't have made it to their um, their final concert is uh, there'd be weird things where people were playing things they couldn't play or just just singing and yeah. um is really this is the the shift to me where they just started focusing on what's going to work for the song versus what's going to work in a live setting well and and you can do a lot of things when you know you're not going to have to perform it yeah yeah and they could have also harrison could have just played along on the guitar mm -hmm. live and and lennon could have done the piano part like the, there's right. ways they could have adapted especially a song like this they could have easily adapted for live sure but um it's it, it, it's just cool to to focus only on the recording aspect of it and making the, the best song that they could well you had mentioned uh ozzy a little bit ago and uh was it rolling stone just released their top 10 greatest uh heavy metal songs of all time and oh, Black Sabbath has like four of the spots and uh, <laughs> yeah. or three of the spots and Ozzy's on another two of them. And I'm That's like, wow, <laughs> so Ozzy, Ozzy is on all the Black Sabbath songs. It wasn't any of the Dio era stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, so the 10 greatest metal songs, according to them, half of them have Ozzy Osbourne on them. Yeah, I think that, I mean, in, in a way it's fair, it's Black Sabbath, but yeah. I also think they could probably expand their minds a little bit. Yeah, I, there were <laughs> or, or at least have a rule like only one band is uh you know because it'd be like what are the the five greatest songs of all time you could easily put five beatles songs oh, yeah <laughs> ten, you could do top 10 top 20 could all be all beatles songs but show a little more imagination than that right and i mean uh master of puppets i think was number two 
But the okay. number one song they had picked, and I'm sorry, it was the the hundred greatest because I, I remember somebody mentioning oh, okay. one of the bands that was. But in, in the like top the 90s. ten, it was. But in the top ten, yeah. Oh, okay. uh, and uh, the number one song they picked was the song Black Sabbath. Mm. I I don't know that it's it's kind of a I guess it's metal, but it's not like a heavy. It's more of a dramatic, almost film score yeah, it's, kind of song. It's doomy. I mean, yeah. I think the end, the yeah. like that part definitely, but yeah, the beginning part, it's just, it's like a doom. Like, I mean, at the time, I mean, it was. It, I mean, it's like when they say Stairway to Heaven is a metal song and it's kind of like, yeah, half of it's pretty heavy, but the first half is not. And I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify, I wouldn't classify uh, Ze- any Zeppelin is heavy metal or any purple for that matter. I mean, I think they've got their heavy moments, but mm-hmm. they're mostly just rock bands. Black yeah. Sabbath is heavy metal. Oh yeah. I mean, Zeppelin had, you know, Stairway to Heaven. They had Immigrant Song, uh, When the Levee Breaks. Yeah. Like they had some, but I think of them as like a warm acoustic band more than I do thinking about distortion and hard rock by any means. I agree. Yeah. But you know, we're going to hit my favorite song on this album. All right. And uh, while I think this song could have been 10 minutes long, it is only exactly two minutes long. Which, <laughs> exactly. Songs are so short. Which, I mean, the riff is like 20 seconds. So. I, it's the longest riff. I, was, I guess we'll get into that in a second. Yeah, but. Let's check it out. And Your Bird Can Sing. <laughs> interesting about this song is it seems like there weren't a lot of songs where they where the vocals were so on the beat like this one is i mean it's very specifically da 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 yeah uh, where the 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 other songs are kind of a little a little bit more free form yeah um yeah i i i i really like this one and Again, like like we talked about before the song, it's just it's got like you've got the little half version of the riff to start off the song, mm-hmm. but then in the in the next part they play it. It's, so I think they only play that three times, but the second time it's they extend it mm-hmm. times two, and it it's so long and it's really actually very intricate how it takes all those twists and turns. It's not as uh, I I, th- I think it's one of the more technically interesting uh, riffs or songs that they that they wrote in this era and what a killer baseline yep i mean it's just it it, it's really the baseline is the busiest part of the song he's playing a lot of quick notes in there and but the groove between that and the guitar is just phenomenal yeah and it's great and john lennon didn't like the song yeah I, i so i researched this one a little bit after i got the album and i thought what is this about and I saw so yeah. many different versions of what they thought he wrote the lyrics about. It was about a reporter. It was about a guy that liked his wife. It was about <laughs> Paul McCartney, yeah. like all these different things. Who knows? Yeah. I have no idea what it's he about. He probably didn't have any idea. <laughs> yeah, he probably, he, I mean, John Lennon was so creative and interesting in like the way that his brain worked that he would think of these little weird phrases. Mm-hmm. So like I could just see him just and your bird can sing. And he'd like just like 
oh, that sounds like a song. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and 15 minutes later, probably had this, you know, like it could be just about nothing. Mm -hmm. um, or, or, you know, it's something that was reported in the newspaper that he read that morning about, you know, and he just changed the words around slightly. I mean, there's so many different ways it could go, but it's it's really interesting. It's It's weird that he didn't like it. Like, he's just like. I think one, he was like, ah, it's just a piece of crap. Or, and I think later when he, you know, in the Playboy interviews, he was like, ah, I think he called it like a throwaway song or something. Wow. Ah, just, you know, whatever. That's just filler. Um, you know, we could all be so lucky to write filler like a Beatle. Right. But, yeah. If, if that was the worst song I ever wrote, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'd, I'd be sitting on a pretty big pile of money right now. Absolutely. Uh, I do want to play another part in the song and, and I want to focus on the vocals because this is something that I think is one of the Beatles. In, in their entire catalog, one of their best moments when they hit this part. Those harmonies are unbelievable, priceless. I mean, just yep. like I sometimes I'll listen and I'll just go back and listen to that part a couple times because it's so beautifully, so beautifully performed that I, I'm like, God, this is. I don't know what cosmic things had to come together for these guys to get to that moment, but whatever it was, uh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all that practice doing live harmonies together. Just, yeah, just outstanding in the way that they were so good at not just, you know, keeping like parallel thirds or whatever. They were just, they would, uh, I don't, I don't even know how to describe what they're doing. Like they're dipping, uh, they're Paul, dipping below, like they're starting with the third and then they're dipping below that. And then above that, it, it's just, it, it's kind of like when I, when I think about um, the way that Richie plays the, uh, the solo to highway star, where yeah. it's in like three different modes and just the insanity that goes into a song like that. That's kind of how I think of like, this is so next level stuff. Yep. And it sounds so simple, but it is not, and, and I just like, I wish I could be a fly on the wall and watch them put that together of all the things they ever did. That would be the one yep. moment I'd want to revisit. Oh, absolutely. It's great. Yeah, for sure. Uh, as we go through the album, we are on song 10. Uh, this is called For No One. Your day breaks, your mind aches. You find that all their words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs she wakes up, she makes up, she takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry. She no longer needs you, and in her eyes you see nothing. No sign of love behind the tears, cried for no one. A love that should have lasted years. I think pretty much everybody can relate to losing someone who is important to you, whether it be romantic interest or a friend or relative or, or something, and just wanting to cling on to those last little memories. And what were the good things that are going to make me feel good about this loss? Like, what did they say to me? What did they show me? Or, you know, uh, yeah. definitely an incredibly relatable song. But that piano. Yeah. That gets me every time. I love that playing. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. And that's just, you know, I think McCartney being left-handed uh, on the piano comes across because he get, he he has like a lot of, you know, he's not like a piano player person. I mean, he's a great piano player, but he's not like a piano player. So he he 
he has such interesting things going on with his base hand that a uh, right-handed player of his skill level wouldn't necessarily uh, necessarily do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's I think it, this is him coming to... This is actually like a, I believe, a uh, song about a real-life experience. I think he was he was breaking up with Jane Asher at the moment or oh. they were having a rough patch or whatever and mm-hmm. just kind of... Uh, um, asking the questions of what you know why isn't our relationship the way that it was before or, or you know or, or they're having a rough patch or whatever it was mm-hmm. um so it's really interesting and then i you know we didn't hear it on the thing but the the french horn solo on this is just absolutely this this to me is paul mccartney at his best yeah. and um while um i don't know if the the i don't know if the French horn was like improvised or written by the horn player more than likely written by George Martin written out and had him play it. Maybe he wrote it on the piano and then wrote it out for the, the horn mm-hmm. player. But, um, but he, at either way, it's just this little unexpected thing where you're just hearing like piano and bass and vocals. And then all of a sudden, boom, this French horn solo comes in and it's, it's unexpected and it just fits the song so perfectly. Yeah. The tone of it is, is somber. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like hopeful for a second and then get somber again. And just it just has that right mellow tone to it that that really works for the song. Um, I also love the the end of the last verse that um, there will be times when all the things she said will fill your head. You won't forget her. I love that line because that is so true, especially if you're, mm-hmm. you know, if you are clinging on to those things from that person to keep their memory active or, you know, to try and just keep it alive for another moment in your head. Like you gather all those things and you put them in a little box and every once in a while you're open, you're, you'll open it and try to you know recapture that moment. I, I think that's a very powerful lyric. Yep. Yeah. Another, another great song. I mean, Nate, we're 10 for 10. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to find fault with a lot on this album. I mean, it's, you know, you could say some songs are stronger than others. It's probably as far as you could take it, but it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not while it is, um, common for for this to be really regarded as uh, these days as being one of their finest albums um you can see why it's just it's it's yeah. well and it's fun. an emotional roller coaster too because i mean you go from and your bird can sing to for no one and you know so you're like all this there's this really happy little song and there's this one that kind of makes you want to slit your wrists and then you know then we get into to dr robert our next song i'm like it's it's a roller coaster yep absolutely I wonder, was there anything in, in the Let It Be? Because I haven't seen it yet. Was, was there anything about how they chose the order of their their songs for the albums? I don't think so. And it's, it, you know, it's um in the, the, the Get Back documentary. It's um if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. It's, yeah, it's just it's I, I've, I've seen clips, but I haven't seen there's, there's, there's the whole no thing. I've, there's no documentary that's ever been done this way because there's virtually no it's not like a documentary where like they show the band and then they, they, they cut to like a studio of some interviewing somebody. There's no interviews. Mm-hmm. There's all, there's no voiceovers. There's, it's just the footage of them at work. Mm-hmm. So if it does happen, I, I don't think, I don't think so. I think it's just about the recording process. Um, but there's, there's a couple of times where they'll put some words on the screen, like, uh, about like oh this is after George Harrison came back or whatever or, and this is the next day or this is the date they'll show a calendar and they'll show what day they're on but other than that it's just watching them it's it's they're not giving you any 
uh, interpretation, any any analysis. It's just you look and you form your own opinion of the story. And that's, I think, what makes it so compelling. I think we're really just lucky that they allowed people to film, that their sessions weren't private and you yeah. Know. Well, and that was the whole idea for this is they wanted to film the entire thing and show the process and make the movie. And they did. But the movie does not show the movie shows the footage in a way to kind of be- make you believe something's happening and create drama that wasn't necessarily there. Right. And this shows you actually what happened and you can form your own opinions, which I think is why it's better. It's but, also uh, four times as long or five times right, as long. Right. The one, one of the clips that I had seen was that I can't remember which song it was now, but they said the reason that Ringo wasn't on the song from the beginning is because when they started recording, he was in the bathroom and they didn't know it. Oh. And so he rushed out of the bathroom to get behind the drum set. And then he just came in on the beat. And I'm like, I think that I think that was actually Hey Jude, but which isn't which isn't part of the movie. But I think that's the story is that, yeah, he went to the bathroom and he heard them doing a take. So he like kind of crept back over to the drum yeah. kit. I'm like, is that how we write? I mean, that but that's the magic of just spontaneity and going, you know what? That happened and it worked. So we're just going to keep it instead of just saying, yeah. oh, I didn't know you weren't there. Let's re-record it or whatever. And they're masters like they're, they're, they're these weren't people that were just starting out. These are people that had so much experience playing together that they could do something like that because they just, you know, would make it work. Well, you know who else is experienced, Nate, is our good friend, Dr. Robert. Oh, yes. They pick such an interesting progression for their their melodies. You yeah, know, the, you just wouldn't think you'd go from this note to that note and it would work because it's like too much of a stretch. You need something in the middle. But God, like, it's like everything they do just works. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. This is um, another Lennon. Lennon one, I think McCartney wrote the, uh, he wrote one of the, I don't know if it's the, well, 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 you're feeling that, that I think he might've written that part of it. Um, it does feel McCartney-ish. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I know he wrote some part of it. That's the only thing I can think of, but, um, yeah. So I, I, I think my favorite part of the song is just the way he says, Dr. Robert, the second time, it just kind of like Dr. Robert, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is a good song. Um, it, it's just it's probably the most danceable song on the album, um, which is weird coming yeah, from somebody who doesn't bing, dance. Bing, bing. It has that kind of feel of the earlier Beatles songs that mm-hmm. like doom, that kind of driving boom, bink, bink, bink. It's only, you know, like, you know, she was just 17. Yeah. You can almost hear, you know, it's kind of that same kind of I don't know, groove or whatever you'd call it of the, the interplay between the guitars and the bass and the drums. Um but yeah, this is a this is one uh, a one that's is about an actual guy, Doctor Roberts. But they were very good at, you know, always figuring out a way to change a word so it sounded better because mm-hmm. Doctor Roberts would wouldn't have scanned the same way. Right. But uh, it was a legitimate doctor who I guess was um, 
I think famous people liked him because he would prescribe you kind of whatever you wanted. Oh, <laughs> sort of thing. You know, so like it's like, oh, you know, one of those guys that where you tell him what you want, you know, like, hey, not like, oh, here's what's bothering me. What can you do for me? It's like, hey, I want whatever barbiturates or uppers or downers or whatever. And so I think he, he made a lot of friends. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine you know, with that kind of freedom uh, certainly would be very popular. Uh, yeah, I've got yeah. something that can help you. It's it's just a fun. It's just another song that's just really fun. Yeah. Yep. You know, something that you don't have to think about. You can just enjoy and not, you know, like like with uh, for no one where you're like, you know, you're probably thinking of someone or recalling something in your life that relates to that situation. Uh, but with this, like, unless you knew a guy, you know, which probably a lot of our friends did, but, but uh, you know, this is a song that you can just put on and enjoy and not really have to have to relate it to anything yeah yeah uh so we've got another great harmony song coming up here this one's called i want to tell you You know, they are singing together so tightly that it's actually creating a little bit of a flanging effect. That's how yeah. perfect they are yep. together. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I don't think there's anything double tracked. Maybe, well, maybe Harris, maybe the lead vocals are double tracked. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's 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 pretty incredible. Great harmonies. Yeah. And <clears throat> kind of a, a more normal lineup with everybody on their main instruments. I don't think Lennon plays guitar on this one. Mm -hmm. Um uh, but yeah, really, really cool song. I, I it's it, it it sounds like it's almost like a filler track or a throwaway track, but it's it's got so much character to it. And what what they're doing on the piano, like I remember my buddy Paul used to say, it sounds like they let Ringo on the piano because it's like <laughs> da dang da dang da dang. It's all discordant in that part. Yeah, but I think it's Paul playing the piano. But it's like this intentionally discordant, like bling da bling da bling that he's hitting that shouldn't work, but it does and it actually kind of almost makes the song well and and to make a a, a deep purple comparison and, and again to go back to hard love and man i think that's the the right one uh isn't that the one where john comes in just completely oh yeah off sounding but it works well and he said yeah i think john lord's the one who said too like you know you um, well it's a common thing in music a lot of people say it but you know you play you play the wrong note once but then you play it two three four times and it's not the wrong note anymore <laughs> right. and you know if you listen to john lord solos most of them are first takes and things he does that a lot where he hits a note that should be a sour note but he knows how to incorporate it in a mm -hmm. way and repeat it a certain number of times in a certain rhythm where you're like oh yeah he meant to do that right yeah. um and true true masters can do that you know if i did it it would sound awful yeah i would just hit a different note wrong the, the next yeah. time and or forget the amateur would hit the wrong note and then be like, oops, and then go right to the right note. And it would sound terrible, but you know how to incorporate. It. And if you if you know anything about jazz or anything, you you yeah. that's like second nature to jazz players. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I would imagine it would be well, it would probably be tougher for somebody who grew up classical because everything's so rigid yeah. and has to be to the note. And he was classically trained. Um, 
but yeah, this is this is just another elegant song. I mean, it flows really nicely. The the vocals and the harmonies really carry the song. But I love the guitar tone on it too. That that really stands out to me. And of course, that thick, rich bass sound. Yep. Yep. Another excellent recording. Um our second to the last song, I, I don't know why I think this one is so well known or so popular, but I, I'm sure I've heard it in movies or television or something before. This is called Got to Get You Into My Life. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. Ooh, and I suddenly see you. Did I tell you I need you every single day of my life? You didn't run, you didn't lie, you knew I wanted just to... Is it just me or does Ringo, the last couple songs, he's been a little bit quieter, like he's further back in the room? Yeah, I don't know if it's just because there's so much going on here with all the horns. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- this I, I think this has got to be one of their most covered songs i know we were on a recent road trip my wife had put together a a, a playlist that was all beatles covers mm. and this is one i hear too at work like i'll hear like a hundred different versions of this one and it's just i mean it's just again i think paul mccartney at his best great melody great lyrics a song that everyone can relate to you know i gotta get you into my life you know it's just and those the, the call and response between the vocals and the horns is just genius it's so good yeah, and it's weird because the brass is is almost not muted in the way that the notes are muted, but it's got like a mellow EQ to it. You know, yeah. they're, they're not really bright in the mix. They're a little bit toned down, which I, I actually like. I think if they were too bright, I think it would have been too brash for the song. Yeah, and it's just trumpets and saxophone, like th- three trumpets and two saxophones. This is one of the rare ones where they actually have the names of the players oh, wow. are known. And a lot of them, it just like would list like session musicians. Um, but uh, I, I, I think Lennon had said this was one of you know, Paul being inspired by Motown music, and you can hear, definitely hear that in the horns. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is another one that Lennon gives him a lot of credit for, and thinks it's a really great song. And the vocals are really strong. I, I, I love those yeah. long, drawn out uh, power notes at the ends of the the lines. And um, re- this song has a lot of character to it. I could see why people would want to cover it. And a rare song on this album that doesn't seem to have any like harmony vocals by Lennon or Harrison. It's just Paul McCartney. Yeah. Um, so it's like they got that main upfront singer mm-hmm. the, and the horns kind of, I guess, I guess, you know, just in the genius of their arrangement and in Martin's production, knowing that with all these horns going on, you probably didn't need additional uh, harmony vocals as well. Right. Yeah. That would have been uh, potentially overkill. Yeah. Certainly harder to mix. So our last song... Or they ran out of tracks. Or they ran out of tracks. Yeah, very possibly. Um, Our last song is probably another one of their most covered songs. Uh, I I think um, this one, I actually covered this on uh, when I did the Sucker Punch soundtrack because there was a really ethereal version of it that I actually really like. Phil Collins covered this song on um, one of his solo albums. Uh, It's called Tomorrow Never Knows. Turn off your mind, relax and float 
there are so many things going on. <laughs> yeah. Yep. First off, lots of. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, first off, we've got an interesting, you know, non four four style drum beat from Ringo. So already you're setting a bass for the song that's going to set it apart from other things. Uh, then you've got these bird sounds that I, I don't know how they said, you know, we should add really weird <laughs> bird sounds. Like, I don't know how they came up with their ideas, but genius. You've got backwards instruments. You've got forward instruments. You've got a sitar. I mean, this is just a, a it's like, let's take everything we did on this album and do it again and throw it into one song. I think this is an example of Lennon not really being able to get what he was, what he imagined in his head. And I think Strawberry Fields was another song where he mentioned like he wanted the specific sound and he just, he was disappointed with it because he could, it wasn't what he, you know, and you can relate as a songwriter. Yeah. You've, uh, you you go in when you do you you want it to sound a certain way and you just don't know how to articulate that or how to create that and then it ends up being the way it is and you're like okay well that's the closest I can get mm-hmm. other people might hear it and say oh that sounds cool but they don't know what you're going for right exactly. and if you miss the mark they don't know because this is the, the only way they've ever heard it um he said that he wanted this to be like he wanted to sound like the Dalai Lama screaming at the top of a hilltop and have all these monks chanting underneath it and it never really kind of came to the way that he wanted it to and then uh, what they did was i mean it was a lot of um tape loops and things so you you hear this like you do hear kind of like the sitar droning in the background and um like you like you said the birds chirping i I don't know i remember what all the tape loops are but there's all these different loops that they bring in at different times and some of them are played in reverse so it's definitely this really crazy melding of all these different sounds um and probably uh uh you know, influenced by his LSD use at the time as well. <laughs> it, it is kind of weird to think that you come up with a song as great as this and go, yeah, that's not what I wanted. I mean, just this, that concept <laughs> is so strange. But as a, as a as a composer, I totally get that. You know, I, I would love to hear what a screaming Dalai Lama sounds like. Don't know that I've ever heard that sound. Um, That's I, 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 <laughs> yeah, not well known for his screaming. Yeah, he's he's a pretty calm dude, you know. Uh, but this is just a, another fantastic piece of, of art. And I think it's it's one that really stands on its own. If the Beatles hadn't written this song, the only other person I could see coming up with something similar to this would have been Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, yeah, I could see that with like the kind of uh, the, the studio tomfoolery going on here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, this was uh, this was the inspiration for The Mule by Deep Purple. Mm-hmm. um which which is very similar in the drum beat and uh uh my unpopular beatles opinion is that i'm not crazy about this song <laughs> as much as every beatles fan like for some reason loves this one um and i'm not a fan of the mule either by deep purple that's it's, true it's, you're which not is no, uh, um uh the studio version anyway yeah I, I think they they take this same idea and and draw it out even longer this is only three minutes so yeah i think the mule is like four and a half or something so i think you were uh, you were a fan of the first half of the mule and then where it just kind of well, gets they do repetitive it live, after they just that. do the, the first little minute and a half of it and then they go into the drum solo and it's like right. okay that that i can tolerate but it's just it's very monotonous right uh this one at least it's it breaks it does break it up with a lot of these different tape loops and stuff doing different things right. it's cool i i like it as an ending to the album and i think mm-hmm. it's kind of a cool thing it's just never been my favorite i'm definitely more i'm not into john lennon's like 
you know, Revolution 9 would take this to the next level and be three times as long. Right. And I'm not a fan of that at all. Yeah, that's uh, I you know, that's one song I can say I never listen to. No, I can't do it. It's yeah. just it's 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 I'm it's one of those things that's probably super fun to do and make, mm -hmm. but it's not fun to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when you're especially on an album like this, where you hear so many great melodic things, this this one at the end, it's a cool way to end the album. But it does keep up with the fact that you're doing all this cool studio inventiveness. Mm -hmm. And, I you know, I like it in the context of the album, but it's not something I'm going to. Uh, get crazy about by any means it's it in my opinion it's probably the weakest part of the album mm. but you know it's the weakest part of revolver so it's not exactly <laughs> yeah. saying that's like what's the worst cookie in the batch <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> this is the yeah this is the worst one i'm still gonna eat it so if you were if you were driving cross country and you're listening to revolver and you get to tomorrow never knows do you skip to the next album or do you still listen to it no i would i would listen to it yeah okay that's fair I, I think the thing for me is that that I love about it is I love the tone of it. I love the the environment of it. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like a really crazy place that I'd want to be at. Like I'd want to go visit in, in real life if a place like that existed. Uh, it, it kind of feels like a Roger Dean album cover come to life. Oh, that's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. And and I know this this preceded Roger Dean doing album covers, but uh that that's definitely ah, if the how beatles it's... had made it into the 70s would roger dean have done one of their album covers that's a good oh that question. could have been a really cool partnership i think because he did what well, he did the uh was it harvest he did the logo for oh did he maybe I think so i think it was I didn't know uh, it was i think harvest records uh and he did the yes cover and of course some uriah heap covers and uh he did a one for deep purple um can't remember which one was it it wasn't rapture of the deep was it did he do one for Deep Purple? I thought he did. I don't know. Maybe not. I thought there was some association on one album with Roger Dean. Um, I mean, you never know. If it's Rapture for the Deep, that would be, it seems like that would be not taking full advantage of his, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Very simple album cover, but. Yeah, it's not one of my favorites. I mean, it seems like he would, it seems like he would have, but I don't think he did any yeah. album covers. I, I Rapture for the Deep was. Um, it was somebody famous though, wasn't it? Was that another Giannis cover or? Oh, it might have been. That might be who I'm thinking of. Yeah. Who also worked with Uriah Heep. Um, but yeah, I, I, this definitely feels like a Roger Dean picture come to life for me. It just it just there's so many weird things going on and it's just in a in a whole different environment. It's a, it's a completely different made up world. And that's what I like about it. I don't know if it's the song itself or it's just that I like the atmosphere and the feel of it. Uh, the craziness yeah. of the birds and and all that. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's one I enjoy. I, I really love the version that they did on the Sucker Punch soundtrack. It's so drawn out and ethereal and very film scorey, um, which, which was out. that whole album. They did a great version of White Rabbit. And um, oh, there's another one that I really like that I can't think of at the moment. But uh, yeah, really cool soundtrack. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is such a great album. I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've listened to it. It's not the most listened to album by me. I think I'm pretty sure that's down to earth. The the like the all time most yeah. listens would be down to earth. Second would probably be Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. This has to fall really? in the top. Uh, I would say probably in the top five for me. Hmm. You know, in a, in a very yeah, influential. I don't, I don't know for sure for me, but I, yeah. I, I would say it's probably top top 20, mm -hmm. I would say. For sure. I'm pretty sure that this music was the reason that when I started um, 
really getting serious about writing songs, I would finish a song or finish like the structure of the song. What else can I add? What else? can Okay. Yeah. But what else right. can I do? Like, like, what else can I do to make it more interesting and different and not standard? And And I think I really pulled a lot of that from the Beatles because they seem to do that. But yet they did it with simplicity. Yep. And that's what's yeah, magic I, about them. I think the cool thing about um I think the cool thing I mean, about the era too is you're putting in an album. You're not necessarily skipping around on songs on a vinyl. Yeah. Um, maybe you are a little bit, but you know, usually you just put it on and let it play. And this this whole album is as even though I think we I I, I don't think we were recording yet when we talked about it, but this this album is 14 tracks, which if I saw that now, you know, in deep purple terms or whatever, I'd be like, oh, okay, that's going to have to be at least two episodes because these are going to be long tracks. It's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. This whole album is just a little over 35 minutes long with 14 (laughs) tracks. Most of them, like I said, there's only three songs that even hit the three minute mark and just barely. So, um, you know, you put this, this on and you just kind of also just vibe out and you're also not having the same distractions we have now. You're not you know, you might not even have a TV. You just you're just sitting listening to music, you know, drinking a drinking something or or hanging out with friends or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, I think people had a, a different and better appreciation for 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 music then because there there weren't as many distractions. Well, that's very true, and and plus you had you know nice album art to look at, and it wasn't you yeah. know on this tiny little CD or or whatever. Speaking of which, I did oh, find my dad's copy. Oh, it's a little, it's uh. It's it's a little scuffed up at the bottom here, uh-huh. right, right about here, and then on the back cover a little bit too. But you know, it's an original pressing. I'm sure it's not worth anything, uh, you know, maybe, maybe like five bucks or something. But um, it's my dad's original. The, the vinyl itself is actually in pretty good shape. Well, I mean, and actually, uh, now that I'm looking better. It's a little scratched <laughs> up. But... <laughs> but as time goes on, and those copies get more and more rare, I mean, they'll get damaged as they as people move, as they you know transfer things from generation to generation, sell them or whatever. You know, over time, I think those things will gain more and more value, especially a first pressing, even in you know medium condition, would probably have some kind of value to it. I, w- I would just, out of curiosity, even just look at Discogs and see what uh, what that's going for because. I would think a first pressing is probably reasonably rare in in decent condition. Yeah, this is interesting because on, on the back it says, you know, they would do this in the in, with the Beatles. It'd say the track and then lead singer on that track. So lead singer George Harrison, lead singer Paul McCartney. Wow. You know, for the you know who wanted to who wanted to be the singer on that track, and then at the bottom, obviously the the design is by Klaus Vormann, and it's kind of the design is kind of the 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 visual equivalent of of tomorrow never knows right. cutting out a lot of little pieces and making this little mosaic or this little uh whatever of, of visual the same way they did with sound uh, and then at the bottom it says capitals new improved full dimensional stereo sounds better than stereo has ever sounded before and then part of it's ripped so i can't read it but it says um new impact in the percussion new bite to the brass brass new crisp something that's ripped off i can't tell but talking about the clarity of the recording and everything yeah. so it's it's Interesting. It's funny. It's a stereo album, but half of it's in mono, except for like the vocals, which are in both ears. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what? What? Right? Because that's not Apple Records, or or no, Apple Records would have been around by then. No, this is before Apple. I think oh. Apple only started with, let's say, the White Album, maybe. Oh, okay. I'm, I might be wrong on that. This is EMI. This is the, you know, American pressing. I'm sure mm-hmm. my dad would not have gotten it in England, but right. Um, uh. 
Yeah, I don't know what the first one that had the apples, kind of like when Deep Purple switched over to Purple from Harvest. Right. But um, that would think, be uh, uh, Machine want... Head was the first album that came out on Purple Records. Oh, was it? Was it that early? Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple Records. I'm trying to see what the first one. Um... I, I do say on my uh, copy of Jimi Hendrix's Are You Experienced? Um, it it says in in bold letters, stereo at the, at the top. I know. Yeah. They're just bragging about it. It's like yeah. taken for granted now. Yeah, it was. Uh, the uh, the White Album was the first. Um, oh, wow. OK. It got. Yeah, because I think they started. Uh, I think they started Apple in 68. Uh, so they released the Hey, Hey Jude Revolution single was the first single. And then the Beatles White Album was the first album. I bet EMI was pissed. I mean, they were smart to to start their own label, but I bet EMI was like, "God damn it!" Yeah, <laughs> we just <laughs> they lost were the smart, biggest band in the world. Almost, except that it didn't turn out to be as uh, easy as they thought. Yeah. Well, and I always I always wondered why Metallica didn't start their own record company because they're they're another one that would have the uh, ability to do it. But I yeah. I can't imagine that they're under the oppression of any record company. They no no you, you no know. they're they're probably too smart. To start their own record label, I think is the thing because like somebody like the Beatles, they started their own record label and their own stupid boutique and all this sort of stuff. And it was like just pissing away money and putting their friends in charge of things that they probably weren't qualified to do. Like, just let the let the suits handle that. Especially if you're the Beatles, they're not going to like you said, you have full creative control already. It's not like you're breaking free. So, oh, the record label stopping us from putting out the music we want to do. You're doing whatever the hell you want. Just let the suits run the business part of it. Yeah. And I have a feeling like ear music is like that too. I have a feeling ear music doesn't really interfere a whole lot with their no, more major no. acts like Blackmore's Night or or Deep Purple or Alice Cooper. Satriani. Yeah. The, it's so much different now though, you know, like what, what the role of a record label is versus what it was then, you know? And I think, uh, you know, and we're talking about, you know, whatever Alice Cooper and Satriani and Deep Purple are on such a different level and it's such a different playing field now. It's 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 really comparing apples and oranges. It's 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 so much different. And there's so many independent yeah. bands now that don't even have a record label. They're just like we're putting out music ourselves. Right. And that's kind of the cool way to do it, too. I have to wonder, though, thinking about that in terms of going back to the early days of the Beatles, say their first album, which was that Meet the Beatles? Yeah. Yeah, that's the first one, right? So I have to wonder what that situation was like because they were brand new. Was the record company like, look, you guys are a whole new thing. We're just going to let you do your thing and we'll pay for the album. Or was it like, um, we're going to kind of step in here and there. Like that would have been a weird situation because the record company really wouldn't have known what to do with them. Yeah. And it's, uh, Meet the Beatles is their second album. That always, that one always confuses me because I I got my dad's albums right here, and it's like yeah, the, it's introducing the Beatles, oh, <laughs> yes. right? Which is like is hilarious. Introducing them now now you can meet them now after you... they put one album out, <laughs> yeah. and then it's like and it's like and then the third album's Welcome to the Beatles. And the fourth album is like How about them Beatles? <laughs> right. Here they are, the Beatles. I don't, um, yeah, they kind of mil- milked that into the into the ground. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that would be interesting to find out is how that that relationship was in the beginning. Like once they once they hit, then obviously the record company would have been like, you guys just make your music. We'll just support it. But that first album, because I mean, if you were a record company and the you were putting their first album out, what would you what would you even tell them? Like the world's not ready for you yet. So I can't really give you any kind of direction. Uh, I just right. think you're going to be a hit. So I'll pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's, it's interesting to note too, not to keep going back to it, but the, the UK versions and the US versions had different titles. Oh, did they? Um, yeah. And then they also, had, there was another, um, uh, <laughs> uh, there, there's uh, another record label in VJ too, but like on Capitol, it was Meet the Beatles, but the, the album was Please Please Me in the UK, mm. which had that like the famous photo of them like standing up on the, the balcony. Mm. And then the the one that my dad has, which is the, you know, meet uh, the, I'm sorry, the introducing the Beatles um, was them kind of all just standing there looking goofy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I think in my, in my uh, MP3 collection, I've got it listed as Please Please Me. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then they had with with the Beatles. So there's so many. There's <laughs> introducing the Beatles, meet the Beatles, with the Beatles. Um, so yeah, it gets it gets a little confusing. But then eventually they kind of became so big that they didn't need to, uh, you know, do the stupid Americanization thing anymore. Right. And I ha- I also have the ha- the version of Help that I have for my dad was the movie soundtrack. So it's got the songs, mm-hmm. but it's also got the score on it, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, but that's the w- way I grew up hearing it. But then you know the album that they released the help album where they're all on the front doing the, doing the, the, the signals or whatever mm-hmm. is just the, um, just the songs. Oh, the, so. the like the proper album. Yeah. The proper album. Yeah. And whereas I have the one that's got the, um, I can't remember. I think it might be a double album, but it's, it's got the full, like the, the, or the, the, the score from the soundtrack, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool. Yeah. Well, it would make sense if it was a double album. Honestly, though, you could fit revolver, probably fit that on one side of a vinyl. I don't know now, what the, maybe yeah. I don't know what you the could, actual also, cut times were, but you could also fit it twice on a CD, <laughs> twice <laughs> yeah, in a row. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's a that's a good point. Uh, I have not and checked most out of the, the early ones, and and this was a like a longer one because if you go back to those earlier albums, you're talking like 27 minutes or whatever. It's God. just insane. It's um the Meet the Beatles. Look, I'm looking right here. 26 minutes. <laughs> Jeez, and it's, and it's got 12 songs on it. Yeah. And and nowadays some of the songs we Little live, Child is a minute forty six. I mean, these are no. short songs. And now we live in a world where like if you're not getting sixteen to eighteen songs on an album, you feel like you're you're not getting your thirteen ninety nine value. Uh, because we're we're now so accustomed to everybody just cramming a CD as full as possible. Uh yeah. God, times have switched. But I'll I'll Which say funny because most people are just streaming it anyway. Right, yeah, exactly. Um I'll I'll say this. If yeah, I guess it only really matters if you're pressing CDs or pressing vinyls, right? If you're just doing uh, an like an MP3 or download only version, the mm-hmm. time becomes irrelevant at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think my vinyl of Woosh, I think, is it four four out records? Or well, okay, but but they started doing something really weird. Like mine is two, but I noticed for like uh, turning to crime, and I think for I think there were yes. like multiple yep. album versions, and I I kept waiting to understand: is there bonus material? Why are there like six or eight albums? <laughs> That's for, crazy for this thing that you can fit on, you know, one album or maybe a double album. Um, I didn't understand why they had all these versions. I still don't really understand why they did that. Uh, if it was just a marketing thing or what, but I'm like I I. I I don't know. Your music is really weird the way they they do their releases. Um, yeah, but but I'll say this for a band that was only together for eight years, who didn't do a lot of touring. It, it, it's well, they a, did a ton. Of, they probably did like a, a career's worth of touring in whatever six years or however yeah. long they were doing it for. Well, you know they you know they d- did a ton in the you know 
back home and then in Germany mm -hmm. uh, in the in the late 50s and early 60s. And then, yeah, but but from the time they started releasing albums, it was really just those four years that they toured. But they were everywhere. You know, they were going to Australia and and um, Indonesia and all these places where um, you wouldn't. I don't know that many bands were, were getting that far out at that point. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I love that because Uriah Heep was like the first uh, hard rock band to play Russia. Deep Purple was, you know, the first band to play Jakarta, although mm -hmm. that was kind of a disaster. Uh, not not by their fault, but um, just the, the situation that ensued. But um, it, it, it's it's just amazing the impact that these guys had in such a short time. But but look at Hendrix. I mean, Hendrix is still music is being modeled after him, and he was really not around that long. Oh yeah, I mean, he was extremely short. Like, what he, two, he died years? in like nineteen seventy. Yeah, yeah, and he he put out a few albums, and yeah, the very. I mean, yeah, it's one of those things too. Like, uh, he he would have always been who he was, but if he hadn't died young, would he have been a, a footnote? Would he have? Been, you know, you just yeah. don't know. People assign a lot of not, of course, not taking anything against Hendrix. I love him and I love those albums. But um, you wonder what would the intrigue factor be if he had just if he was still around now releasing, mm. you know, whatever. Right. W would it just be like or would he be a footnote? Would he w what would have happened? But he, he so much romanticism is put upon his his era. And he truly obviously regardless he inspired there's so many people you hear about inspiring like all these skiffle guys inspired these rock guys too but you don't hear anything about them because they just faded off into into oblivion right. whereas hendrix inspired all of these rock players as well but then he died tragically young mm -hmm. and then became basically a, a legend well and, and i have to wonder if if part of the reason he's famous is because he died young but i think he definitely made his mark musically Oh, but sure. you're right. It definitely gets romanticized and he becomes a bigger entity because he died. Um, but yeah, I, I would wonder what where the bounds of his creativity would have gone. I have a feeling that he would have stopped at some point. He would have just stopped. And yeah, said, maybe. I, I've done what I can do or I've done what I wanted to do or whatever. But I, I love how humble he was. I mean, he he never mm -hmm. considered himself a good player, which is why he always practiced and why he was always striving for something more. I think when you get a big head and you're like, ah, I don't need to, I don't need to practice. I don't, you know, I, I think you get complacent and you're not being creative and striving to write. If the Beatles had just said, you know, we can just whip out songs like nothing, you wouldn't have this album. You know, mm -hmm. Revolver would not have happened because they really, they're stretching what you can do in a studio. They're pushing the limits of creativity. They're doing things that had never been done before. And if you're a complacent creative you're not pushing boundaries for anything. You're like, all right, here's here's the three chords. Uh, let's uh, what yeah. are what are some good lyrics? All right, there you go. There's your song. Yep, absolutely. And you don't care. But Nate, dude, thank you so much for joining me once again for another Beatles review. We still have some some uh, episodes to cover with this band, uh, which yes. which I'm excited about. But uh, man, you guys are just killing it on the Deep Purple podcast. Uh, you, you're getting a lot of love on the show and, uh, I love being a part of, uh, you know, when you have me on as a guest or even just when I'm in the chat room on the, uh, the Patreon shows, uh, it's, it's always a great show, always fun. You guys still through all the holidays, through vacations, through going out of the country, halfway across the world <laughs> have yet to miss a show. Uh, you guys are, are really killing it. 
Oh, the pressure's on, especially with these technical difficulties I'm having. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, uh, well, we made it all the way through this episode with no issues. So yes, uh, we did. fingers crossed for our next episodes. Yep, absolutely. We'll uh, come back. We'll we'll do some more together. In the meantime, everybody check out Nate on the Deep Purple podcast. Links are in the show notes. Also links where you can find Revolver, including the deluxe or the super deluxe edition, as they've come to call it uh, on iTunes. Uh, great album. Nate, thanks so much for coming on and uh, talking about this fantastic piece of history with me. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, my friend. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. <laughs>